0: pure brain. Welcome listeners to episode 199 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And that's episode here for you. I'm going to be doing my Traverse of the Threes number 21. So this one is going to be featuring the Wolf of the Veneurs. This is one that i found and i actually had to buy a copy of it because nothing that i could find online had it streaming and there was sub i think i might have found one version but it wasn't subtitles regardless i did find a fairly cheap dvd that i was able to watch and i'm gonna pair this up with a movie that i've been hearing some buzz about i believe it's a 2022 film but got its wide release this year of birth rebirth and then and this actually makes for an interesting double feature here we have a little bit of mad scientists just in different forms then for mini reviews here for you, I have Arnold. This is a rewatch, my Traverse of the 30s from 1973. I also got to rewatch Annie's Main, now that I know how to pronounce that, that's a rewatch from this year. And then I also have some summer series prep of Night of the Big Heat and Yangari, Monster from the Deep. And then I also have two screeners that I got to watch for review of On the Trail of Bigfoot, Land of the Missing. This is another one from Seth Breedlove. And then I also got to watch the next installment of dynamic Toys with Jack Attack. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get to speed with here for this intro, so what I will say is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. With and for my first mini-review here is going to be my Traverse of the Threes rewatch of Arnold. This is from 1973. This is directed by George Fenedy. This was written between Jameson Brewer and John Fenton Murray. This stars Stella Stevens, Roddy McDowell, and Elsa Lanchester. This is a comedy horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and actually not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but I would say mostly around like a 3 star movie. With our synopsis being, upon his death, Arnold marries his lover Karen despite his widow and leaves death traps accompanied by audio tapes along with his preserved and articulate corpse for those who cared only for his money. So this is one that I learned about through the horror show guide encyclopedia that I'm working through. It is interesting to revisit this one as I didn't realize how stacked the cast was back when I first watched this. I should have known a little bit better, but I digress that I didn't. So I thought it was fine that first time, so I was kind of curious as to where I would sit this time around. And what I really want to start is saying that not knowing anything about this film originally, and I was pleasantly surprised. I saw a comment stating this was kind of like the Abominable Dr. Fibes, and I can see that. It also seems like a Saw-type plot made 30 years before that came out. I am a fan of the fact that Arnold, who in this is portrayed by Norman Stewart, is ahead of the game and knows what these people will do. He knows they're greedy and he's giving them the chance to do the right thing. And when they don't, they're punished. There is something helping here, though, or someone is helping here. And we see that early on as they're looking through the painting with like of it's of Arnold, but it's using the one eye that makes things more plausible with some of these like revenge films where things are just kind of a little bit out there. And it also makes for so many more red herrings about who could actually be helping him. What makes this work, though, is the acting. We get the likes of like Roddy McDowell, we have Elsa Lanchester, there is also Farley Granger, we have Bernard Fox, and there's also Patrick Knowles. Now they're all leading the way. They are at the top of their game at different times and each one of them takes on a different character here and that makes it feel like this dysfunctional family. So then we also have Stella Stevens who is portraying the lover of Karen. She is someone that I don't know a whole lot about but I liked her. Now, she's a modern woman who knows that she can use her sexuality to manipulate the likes of Arnold, Robert, and Robert would be portrayed by McDowell, and then like Douglas, portrayed by Knowles, and even Evan, who was portrayed by Granger. It doesn't work out well for her, but she is trying. I should also say that Shawnee Wallace as Lady Jocelyn Dwellyn, I thought that she was solid. I'm pretty sure she does the singing of the weird kind of musical interludes that we get. We also get cameos by John McGiver and Jamie Farr, who works as well. It's kind of funny is that Jamie Farr is from Toledo, which is right near where I'm from, and hosts a golf classic. I'm not sure if he's still, I think he's passed away, but I know that was in his name for a while there. But I do have to bring up that it's a little bit racist for him, is that he takes on an Indian character, so he's in brownface. It doesn't ruin things, but it makes it problematic today instead of you know hiring an actor of that descent. I also think the brand of comedy that we get in this movie works. It is a black comedy and our players understand the assignment. Credit here for sure as a solid cast across the board. Now another thing that works is the filmmaking. The deaths are interesting. We get a face cream to kill one. A suit that gets tighter which makes me think of like a medieval torture device. There is creativity here and going along with the practical stuff helps bring out character. I was impressed there. The setting is also a plus. We are getting a bit of the old dark house with secret passages making it seem like Arnold is still alive helps there. Now the cemetery is also always foggy. Now What is funny there is that we have characters commenting on it. I'd say that the cinematography here is also well done to hide things as this comes in with a PG rating so that's impressive. What doesn't necessarily work is the soundtrack. We get these odd musical interludes that I was talking about and they are cheesy i will give them that and it's so that does kind of fit with the tone but this is a well-made movie despite that little blip. so there isn't anything else here so in conclusion this is a fun horror film with black comedy elements the premise here isn't new and it's working both with stuff that like dr Fibes films would have already been out so it's kind of falling in the same vein there i like what they do here though what makes this work is the cast we have the likes of mcdowell lanchester and granger The rest of the cast are good in support. This is a well-made movie with the deaths being a bright spot along with the cinematography. The only drawback being the songs that were made for the movie. Doesn't ruin anything though. I'd recommend this one if you're a fan of this era of cinema as I had some fun here. So my rating here for Arnold actually came up after that first watch and I'm now sitting on a 7 out of 10. And for my second mini review is going to be a rewatch of Ennis Mayne actually realized how to say this thanks to Duncan when he did an interview of the writer and director, who is Mark Jenkin. This movie is from 2022, but it got its wide release here this year. This stars Mary Woodvine, Edward Rowe, and Flo Crow. It's a nice little rhythm there. Um, but this is a fantasy horror mystery film that is from uh, the United Kingdom. It is currently set on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being set in 1973 on an uninhabited island off the cornish coast a wildlife volunteer's daily observations of a rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey that forces her as well as the viewer to question what is real and what is a nightmare so this is one that i gave a rewatch to as i originally watched it because i Saw the trailer. looked kind of interesting. So my sister was in town. We went and saw it at the Gateway Film Center. Didn't necessarily know how I sat with it. Heard Duncan interview the from the podcast Under the Stairs, the writer and director and everything like that. So I was kind of curious as to what a second watch would do for this one for me. And, I mean, it did fall outside of usually my criteria that I'm doing for rewatches, but this was a week where I couldn't find anything that I needed to rewatch for free streaming. So I decided to give this one a go since it was on Hulu. But this one, if you want to hear a mini-review that's a little bit more in-depth, I'll go to episode 179, which was Traverse of the Threes number 2, which featured Murders in the Zoo and Malum. But I'll say is that this is an odd little film. This is one that you need to experience, so I mean, I don't even necessarily think I could spoil things here. Relaying what you're seeing doesn't carry the same effect. We are seeing a fever dream play out where we don't know what is real or what is a nightmare. I did enjoy that. It does well in building this atmosphere with the images and the sound design. thought the acting was solid with our lead being portrayed by Woodvine. And everybody else kind of just pushes her to where she needs to end up in the end of this. And even then, it does isn't necessarily about where she ends up. It's more about that journey. If I have an issue here, it's just a bit slow. Now, because of that, I can't rem- recommend this to everybody. But if you're into things that might have like a twinge of folk horror, or like folklore, I would say give this one a watch as there's some interesting elements that come into play here. I do know some people find this to be absolutely boring, but I think it's worth a watch if you're into a bit more of like avant-garde, As this has a little bit more of a story than you'd get for like Skinamarink. So actually my rating has come up. After the second viewing, Ennis main for me is going to be a 7 out of 10. And for my next mini review is going to be a little bit lighter just because this could be a potential summer series pick and that's going to be Night of the Big Heat. This is from 1967, directed by Terrence Fisher. The screenplay was written by Ronald Lyles. And then Pitt Baker helped out there. And then this is from the novel by John Lymanton. So this stars Christopher Lee, Patrick Allen, and Peter Cushing. This is a horror mystery sci-fi thriller film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being... While mainland Britain shivers in the deepest winter, the northern island of Farah bakes in the 90s. So this is a movie that I hadn't heard about until Searching for Horror from 67. Now, what drew my attention here was that this has Terence Fisher as a director and working with some horror alums, uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Now, the name was intriguing, but I came in this one blind figuring that it was streaming, I believe, on Tubi that I would just go ahead and give it a watch just because of the things I've said there were enough. So I'm going to go brief, as I've already been saying here, but it's kind of fun to watch this during a heat advisory in the stretch of my part of the United States. All the talks about global warming, that this is an interesting idea that we're playing with here. And especially being, you know, this is from being in 1967 and we're still kind of dealing with things like this today. But this one though has a little bit different idea of what is happening and i'm not going to spoil that as i didn't really it did get spoiled for me right as i was starting the movie but i don't really think it affects anything especially because this movie for the longest time doesn't really give you an explanation or it doesn't seem like it does so i thought works here is how hot the world this takes place in part of this is done by having our characters constantly look sweaty this is also in part of their performance as well as it feels like tempers have just ramped up and they're about to blow up anytime. I like how they act like it's, you know, it is hot outside. Even though from what I was reading is that this was actually filmed in the winter and it was quite cold for everybody. But we also do other things here where we have like TVs, phones, and even bottles in the bar exploding due to the heat. Cars don't fare well either, which makes sense. I also think that the filmmaking here I should bring in is that a good portion of what I've already been talking about kind of falls into that. I think the cinematography is good to help make that come to life. There's also being set up here by the effects... You know, having everybody look sweaty is another thing. There's something that we get near the end of the movie. I don't mind the look. It was unpractical and has an interesting design, so I thought that helped. Soundtrack fit for what was needed. I think the biggest thing here, though, would be the acting. It's kind of interesting that Lee is given top billing here, because the true star of the movie, or, like, our hero, is portrayed by Alan. My issue with him is that he's good-looking, but he cheats on his wife. And I like that he's a shade of gray. So, I mean, I will give him credit there, but... I thought Lee was solid in his role. He kind of plays a more mysterious guy. Cushing is good in his cameo. I also like the likes of jane murrow she plays angela roberts i like how she factors in she's technically a home and actually comes out to the island to continue to be with this guy so i mean i kind of put a little bit of blame her uh, for doing that but she's attractive we get to see her in her bra a good amount i also would say that william lucas sarah lawson kenneth cope percy herbert and thomas heathcote along with the rest of the cast you know we're good and run this out for what was needed they're are a lot of like minor characters that aren't necessarily fleshed out, but they do push everywhere to where they end up. So, in conclusion, this is an interesting film. This feels like a hammer movie with the atmosphere, tone, and cast and crew, but it isn't. They're still able to capture something here. I like exploring a topic like global warming this long ago, but you know, doing it with an actual villain, the cast is strong. Alan leads the way with Murrow, Lee, and Cushing, as well as the rest of the cast, you know, is out for support. Well, made from the cinematography to the effects. Not one that I'd recommend to everybody, as this is more of a slow burn, you know, no pun intended. But if you like this era or like a faux hammer output, give this one a watch. So I'm not going to give my rating here, but yeah, this is a solid little flick. And I also got to watch a screener for a documentary of On the Trail of Bigfoot, Land of the Missing. This is from here in 2023, actually just got released onto VOD platforms. But this is written and directed by Seth Breedlove this is a documentary of course from the united states and it's not able to be rated yet on imdb and there's not really any ratings on Letterboxd as of yet but the synopsis centuries of reports of hair covered creatures roaming alaska have been uncovered yet beyond the mysterious ape-like animals that haunt the forests of the 49th state there exists numerous legends of horrific beings that blur the line between bigfoot and something else so like i said got to see this one via screener thanks to justin cook I've seen a good number of these works by Breedlove. This series follows Bigfoot through different areas and making up a bulk of them, of like his stuff that I've seen from Breedlove and a lot of his filmography. I know previously he did Last Frontier in this series, which also has an investigation in Alaska. He has more of that here from what I was reading coming in. And I will say, I cut down the synopsis as it got a bit wordy and I thought what I had there sufficed. And I do think this gives you a good idea of what you're getting. This does what others do. Breedlove and his team find interesting people who are hunting for this cryptid and others who have had run-ins with them. If you've read my past reviews, you know my stance. Is it possible that these people have experienced something they can't explain and it being this creature? Absolutely. Do I believe there could be a logical explanation that isn't that? Also, yes. If there is a place that an entity like this could exist, it would be Alaska. It also made me think of legends of like yetis as well. So things you unique- here with this one are that we have this chris mccandless was a person who was made famous for disappearing in the state he's not from there i think he's from georgia but was like hitchhiking and like backpacking so he ended up disappearing so you know people were wondering if bigfoot was involved now there are others and we also have a high number of people disappearing in alaska a good portion of that could be how difficult it is to live up there there are logical explanations and then going along with this there are legends of things like glacial demons or Like these things called little people that seem to be also like cryptids this isn't uncommon to have tales like this when you have a bit wilder area and people still believing in them now there are other things here that match stories from elsewhere breedlove claimed to have heard the crying of what sounded like a baby from the woods where he was staying this fits for the lore of bigfoot as there's been other places where they've tried to lure victims away from others and into like wooded areas another interesting aspect that was brought up are military bases This seems to be another common thread for these documentaries. It made me wonder if there's an explanation as to why they are there and does it have to deal with secrets the government isn't sharing. There's also a high number of UFO sightings, but this once again falls in line with not a lot of light pollution up that way. Now there is an aspect here I didn't know about until watching this. There is supposedly a subterranean structure called the Dark or the Black Pyramid. Energy is supposed to come from it and it could produce enough power for the whole state. This pulled my interest, and I want more information around this now. This could also explain why the military base is there as well. So, and the last thing to go into is that this is well-made. I think the cinematography is good and looks professional. I like that instead of just showing us the interviewees, that Breedlove will edit in images, including, like, newspapers or drawings. He'll also use CGI to reenact what is being said. I do appreciate that, as it keeps it lively and enjoyable. The sound design was also well done here. So there isn't much more here to say either. So in conclusion, this is an interesting documentary. I'm not fully on board that this cryptid exists, but it does. It make it doesn't make it any less interesting for me. Going to Alaska is a smart move. This is one of the states where it's still more wild and has a lot of land that makes it feasible. It's also barren and hard to survive in areas. I do like this almost conspiracy theory angle that are introduced with different ideas. It gives us all, you know, a way in where you can take the information and data to do what you will. Not a documentary that will teach you a lot about Bigfoot. It is more about the experiences of certain people and theories on how it could exist here without being seen. This is well made and if what I said sounds interesting, give us a watch. So my rating here for On the Trail of Bigfoot Land of the Missing is going to be a 6 out of 10. And then another potential summer series pick that I watched was Yongari, Monster from the Deep. This goes by the original title of Kosu Yongari. Now, this is from 1967. This go this was directed by Ki-Duke Kim, who also co-wrote this with Yuan Song-Suo. And then this stars Yong-Il Ho, Jian im nam and Soon Jae lee now this is an adventure drama fantasy horror sci-fi film that is from a co-production of south korea and japan this is currently sitting on a 3.8 on imdb and a 2.3 on letterbox with our synopsis being earthquakes in central korea turn out to be the work of yongri a prehistoric gasoline eating reptile that soon goes on a rampage through seoul So this is one that I'm not fully sure of when I first heard about it. My guess would be one of the podcasts that I listened to. What made a deciding factor to move this up as I watch was that this could be a potential pick as I was saying. This fell into one of my years of 1967 and it was one of the last higher popular films to check out for my prep. So I want to start would be that this feels a lot like South Korea's attempt to do a kaiju film. It is fitting that this is a co-production with Japan who started it and did it better than anyone else. There are similarities here to Godzilla, but it's hard not to emulate a movie like that. It's like making a movie about exorcism without unintentionally doing nods to the exorcist. We have a giant monster running amok and a government needing to find a way to stop it before it's too late. So I'm going to go a little bit lighter here on my recap as I normally do for ones like this. But we get your typical social commentary here. Youngery uses like gasoline and oil to build back up its strength that is fitting since this monster is considered prehistoric and dinosaurs and other material from the past are used to you know kind of make up oil and everything these fossil fuels are environmental issues now there's also the idea here of the middle eastern country using a nuclear weapon that causes the creature to escape from underground that could be a nod here to godzilla who was created by radiation It actually seems like in the original script, this was supposed to be like a one-cell organism coming from space, and then radiation actually made it grow to what it did. We're also kind of exploring the ideas of ineffectual government, and it's kind of crazy to see early cinema for this subgenre, as we see like the politicians have no idea what to do, the scientists don't have enough information yet, and the military is quite gung-ho in stopping it, but I don't blame them. The problem is that when it's pointed out what they're doing isn't going to work, they still want to do it. It's fitting as this concept here is almost like warmongering being believable. I do have some issues here, though. there, And that would be for me as a comedy. We have like Youngery dancing in this. I thought it was cute, but if it just stopped there, it'd be fine. There were little things that hurt the pacing with this as well. Now there's this machine that the beam is used to distract a monster, but the beam fits in the child's hand, and I uh, just a little bit bigger in his hand, so this creature's too big for this to work, unless they made one on a bigger scale, and it goes too heavy with Icho, who is portrayed by Kawang Ho Lee, him not wanting to kill the monster, I get what they're trying to do here, as in the grand scheme of things, the giant monster's doing what it does, but I like the message. I'm just not completely sure why we also have astronauts here. I think this kind of falls in line that there were some rewrites and not thinking about how this was needed to go in that direction should also go back real quick to the, the like child and everything. I think by this point, these were kind of being focused towards children. So that also would probably explain it. Oh, then I think the filmmaking's fine. We have a guy in a suit here playing Youngery and that would be Kai Young Min Chow. I thought he was good. The miniature work was well done. I also love that forced perspective for that stuff there. This does look a little bit too much, like a knockoff of Godzilla, and it even breathes fire and everything like that. So I will also say the cinematography was solid, and then the soundtrack also goes a bit whimsical at times. I would say the acting was solid across the board, but in conclusion, this is a fun little film. It's an interesting co-production between South Korea and Japan for the former to jump into the Kaiju game. I don't mind the backstory of our giant monster and the social commentaries explored. Yangari was brought to life by Ka Young-min. The miniature work and forced perspective helped there. The acting aside from that was fine. This is one that's made well enough, with my biggest issues coming from the intentional comedy. I did want that it eliminated or just toned down a bit. I'm guessing it was just more for assuming that this subgenre was catered towards children. But doesn't ruin anything. I can only recommend it to fans of this subgenre. As it's a high recommendation for them though. In my opinion. So this one not going to give my rating. But I rather enjoyed my time here with Youngery. Monster from the Deep. And for my last mini review for this week. Because I didn't get to watch any television shows. Is going to be Dynamic Toys Jack Attack. This is from here in 2023. It was written and directed by William Butler. This stars Sophia Castellanos. Mabel Thomas. And Sean Raimi. This is a horror film from the united states now i'm there's no ratings on imdb and same thing for letterboxd as i believe the only rating on there is mine so i'm not going to be able to give any sort of thing there but the synopsis a young orphan girl without the ability of speech finds that she has been gifted with the notorious jack-in-the-box from the dynamic toys so this movie that i didn't know was coming out until scandal Coactive. i think that's who they are sent me a copy of the screener for review i believe it was athena that was one that sent it over i'll say that i was a big fan of the first two growing up i've seen at least two of the new sequels that came out in recent memory there might only been one i'm not fully sure but i was caught up with this chance to see this one here the part of me that grew up with full moon films was excited to give this a go so what i'll say here is that I have confirmed I've seen all the movies that fall in this franchise preceding this according to the IMDb page. I know there is a spinoff for Baby Oopsie and maybe even a TV show, but that doesn't look like it's part of this series for whatever reason. There are references, though, with a toy collector talking about them being possessed by demons. This is a minor subplot that is on the news and a newspaper clipping. I don't hate these aspects, to be honest. This has a runtime of less than an hour, and given this backstory worked, I just think it needed to be fleshed out a bit more. So, then let me get over some of the positives. First is the runtime. This flies by. I also love this character of Jack in the Box. I do need to admit, I prefer the original look that we got here in the first two Dynamic toys, but Full Moon has lost a bit of its heart, in my opinion, there. Now, introducing this clown that works with the toy was interesting. It is quite creepy, and what they do with the practical effects here are good. There is a bit of blood and after effect of at least two attacks that I can remember, but positives there. I even like this new lore of a collector wanting to send these possessed toys out into the world. This opens things up for sequels and another thing that Full Moon loves. Now, there is a twist here at the end of the story that I don't know if I'm fully on board with. Now, to move over to some negatives. This movie is too rushed. With We get a decent opening set piece. It then slows down to introduce our characters, and that's all fine. It then has Audrey say that she needs to leave dinner, and then it's like 2 in the morning. And she still hasn't even left yet. should say she is portrayed by Thomas now i doubt this family ate dinner with her at midnight it just feels like no one stopped to consider the timeline they were working with and then there are kills around when everybody arrives at the farmhouse there's a kill it then takes too long for the next one we also have this subplot of tyler portrayed by Raimi being creepy that wasn't needed there isn't a payoff there it just feels like the movie was rushed to shooting and left out important parts of the story that would make them flow more coherently we don't get enough killing for it to work and it's a shame as I think we have something here. I should also say that we somehow have this newspaper clipping in this book that belonged to Lily who is portrayed by Castellano. What's funny though is that unless his news story has been like on the news for a little while, there's no way she could have a clipping as well as it being actually on the news that night. Now, since I've leaned into parts of filmmaking, let me finish my thoughts there. Cinematography is fine. I like the setting of this isolated farm. It isn't too far from where I live now, as I'm in Columbus and this is in Mansfield. Now, the area also feels like where I grew up in Michigan, and I can appreciate that. The CGI we get here isn't great. Thankfully, they cut away from it, so it doesn't look as bad. That was strategic, so credit there. Other than that, I like the soundtrack. I thought that was fine. Fit for what was needed. There is a misstep in not leaning into the -the jack-in-the-box laughing more. That was one of the signature parts about him in the past that made him even more scary. Now, all that's left would be the acting. Cassianos was fine as our lead. She doesn't talk for a good portion of this, so that helps her. I thought she did well with the fear that she showed from her predicament. She looks like life has beat her up. I like Thomas as this woman who has a similar upbringing and wanting to help. It even... If it means losing her job, Raimi was good for the most part. I love that they introduced him as this like creepy stepfather and then not going away with it or not even fleshing that out outside of just introducing it. Rice felt like an annoying wannabe influencer and that would be Taylor Abigail Rice. She plays uh, Dewey, one of the other foster children here. Now we also have like Carson Polish, Tim Novotny, Maddie Small terry lynn bergone christine brunner donna Steele, and brooklyn johnson thought for the most part they're fine here i do want to bring up something with small though is that i don't know why they forced her character to be jealous of lily they don't again flesh this out more than just her giving her boyfriend grief so in conclusion this is one that could have been better than what it is there is a good element here to create a new backstory for the dynamic toys and the -the jack-in-the-box The problem is that there are scenes missing that could bridge what we got. I like the deaths that we see. The villains are creepy looking and the practical effects were fine. This just feels rushed and I needed just a bit more. Not a poorly made movie, so I'll give them that. I'd only recommend this to fans of the modern Full Moon Productions or just of this series. So my rating here for Dynamic Toys, Jack Attack is going to be a 5 out of 10. And then for this one here, this one actually should be out as of the today that I'm recording this, which is August 25th, so I'm assuming you have to probably if you can rent it it's probably going to cost something there on VOD but I believe if you have the full moon streaming service it should be free on there so that should be enough for the mini review so let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my first featured review Dire que c'est le deuxième permis d'inhumer que je signe en l'espace de quelques jours à malveneur. Rien ne laisser prévoir ce. ce suicide Absolument rien. C'est plein de confiance, plein d'enthousiasme. Nous enterres ici comme des chiens. For my first featured review is going to be The Wolf of the Malverners. This goes by the original title of Le Loup des melverner This is from 1943, directed by Guami Rodon. This is written by Francis Vincent Bracanick. Might be mispronouncing that one. And Jean Fellini might also be mispronouncing that one. But we have this one starring Madeleine salong Pierre Renault. And Gabriel Dorzat. And if I get like, try my best here, guys. But this one also features Mikel Marseille, Louis Salou, Yavis Furet, Joe Durvo, Bejon, Marie Olslenik, Marcella Gunat, Henri Charette, Yolanda Fox, and Elena Gardier so this is a horror mystery film that is from France it is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDB and not enough ratings on letterbox but I would say it's closest to being about like a three star movie here and our synopsis is a young governess arrives at the castle of the melviners and begins to investigate peculiar disappearances so this is a movie that I checked out when I was searching for horror from 1943. I had to purchase a subtitled copy of this one on DVD to check it out, since it is from France. It intrigued me since seeing the title. I thought this was a werewolf movie. My brain then shifted to like Brotherhood of the Wolf. This isn't a telling of that story, but we do have a familiar concept that you'll kind of notice as I go through everything. So let me do some featured notes on some of the key people here. and This is going to be kind of a short one, but I'll start with our director, uh, Radon. He has directed seven movies. This is the first that I've seen, only one that he's done in horror. Now over the writer of Vincent Brackenick, or however you'd say that. This is their only credit. Dialogue was done by Feline. They have six credits as a writer, only one that I've seen, and that was in horror. Looking then to the cast, I'll start with Renault. He has been in 65 films. I've only ever seen this. Only work they did in genre as well. His co-star of Solon has been in 37 movies. I've only ever seen this one, and again, only one in horror. Then lastly would be Dorzia. Now she has been in 61 works, I've only ever seen this, much of the same though, only one they've done in genre. So we start this out by learning that there's a curse in this area. It sounds like the wolves hunted and a man became one of them since he would run and hunt with them. There were crimes that were committed and this man was punished. The legend is that he was a werewolf. Now there's another part with killing one with an axe and it pushes the boundaries of what we know with science as well. So then this shifts to a group of people in a room chatting. We have Reginald de Melvener, portrayed by Renault. Now, he's a scientist. He is working on cell regeneration with the pressure being on. There seems to be an illness within the family, and that makes me think that there could be a history of inbreeding amongst the local royalty. Now, his wife is Estelle, portrayed by Olenska. Now, they have a daughter of Genevieve, portrayed by Bajon and then we have Magda portrayed by Dorziet. now she is the sister to Reginald and she has a commanding personality also staying here is the maid of Marianne portrayed by Ganon who is a deaf mute and there's also Eduardo portrayed by Furet now arriving to take on the role of a governess to Genevieve is Monique Valerie and she is portrayed by Solon now she has a rough go when the man bringing her luggage doesn't want to make small talk and then just drops it off forcing her to carry it the rest of the way. We do realize part of this is due to the curse and just not liking this family because there's just something off about them, I think. So she's also met with a cold shoulder from Marianne, but this is understandable, though, as she can't hear and doesn't really know how to interact like a normal human being, and I only mean that because she is deaf and unable to talk, so I just think she's kind of been cold to the world around her. Magda is also this way, but she doesn't like outsiders. Monique and Genevieve do hit it off, though. Another character to introduce here is felipe la fortella portrayed by marseille now he makes friends with monique but magda doesn't like him trespassing he is a painter and he set up close to the castle to paint a landscape now despite being sent away we see him talking to monique whenever he gets a chance so then to go back to the synopsis here the demelviner's gamekeeper disappears this makes monique suspicious when she sees magda come in at night And the governess also finds a scarf that belongs to someone in this place. I thought it was Genevieve. It might also belong to Estelle, but I'm not fully sure on that. Now, Monique decides to find the truth before it is too late, once Estelle also cannot be found as she also disappears. So that is going to be where I'll leave my recap introduction of the characters. Where I want to start is that I saw the beginning of someone else's review about this movie, and I'm wondering if we saw the same print, as it feels like it's missing something. There are interesting elements here, but it feels like we are missing a key piece to tie it all together. Now, as I delve a bit deeper here, I do need to reveal something. My own notions of what I thought we would get here influenced me having issues. I thought this would be a creature feature of sorts. It isn't. It is more about the mystery. There is a curse here. Monique knows there are, you know, off. At least these people are just weird, and she hasn't given the full truth as to what is happening. I'm intrigued by that, as it feels like it's borrowing from something like The Turn of the Screw, That is where I mean that is something that we've seen before. Instead of ghosts and having our governess descend into madness, she wants to uncover the truth, and it could be the print that I'm seeing as a missing section, as there was like a cut that I could watch that would fill in that gap. I would like to see that. I'm there. I won't hold this against a product for what I did see, as I needed more with what I did get here. Now, even though with what I said, I do have an issue with this mad scientist thread not going somewhere, we know that this curse is over the area. There would be a werewolf. Reginald is doing experiments with cell regeneration and that all draws my interest the problem though is that I don't feel like this gets resolved there was a reveal the end but it was something that didn't like move my interest enough to care this was a bit too much of a slow burn for my liking. I also should kind of pivot back what i was meaning there with like a turn to screw there is that monique is also a governess she's also there doing her own investigation the only thing that we're subbing in here with the like no longer having her descend into madness and ghosts is that we have a potential werewolf or her just trying to figure out what is happening to these people as they disappear now what was fine though is the acting i thought that so long does well in this inquisitive character. She does something with getting into the laboratory that I don't think I fully buy. There doesn't feel like enough time for her to investigate enough, and even if she did, she would be discovered. It felt contrived to move the story and try to build suspense. renault was fine as this mad scientist of sorts. The best performance, though, would be Dorziet. She is so mean to everybody, and that works since she's supposed to be like nobility and of sorts. So I'd also say that Marseille, Louis Salut. Farhat, Joe, Dervo, Bajon, Olinsky, Ganon, and the rest of the cast kind of round this out for what was needed. Interestingly as well, in the trivia that I found on the IMDb page is that Olinska is Bajon's real life mother. The former was only in this, and then the daughter took on two projects, and that was the extent of what she was in. So it's all left then to go into would be the filmmaking. I do think the cinematography here is good. I love the castle setting; that adds an almost gothic atmosphere without leaning into it. The shots of the area are also good to showcase the isolation. It doesn't get much in the way of effects here. What they do, you know, uses with like sound is where the best stuff would be there is a storm raging that first night and it also i believe we got like a wolf howling which is fitting i'd say that this was made well enough overall you know despite some of my issues with some things that we do not get here so in conclusion i think that this has good elements for its foundation the idea of this curse over the area and the family that share the same name is good even though this is a bit of a mad scientist is another aspect that i can work with now the acting is solid as well Dorziet being the strongest i also know that Solon and renault being good bijon is adorable this is even well made the cinematography is gorgeous and the setting is good my only problem is that it's just too slow it feels like we're missing an element for it to fully connect not one that i can fully recommend as to what i have seen on the screen it's not a horrible movie just like i said it just doesn't necessarily work for me so my rating here for the wolf of the malviners is going to be a 5.5 out of 10 not going to do a spoiler section not really anything else that i really wanted to delve into here so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review your daughter's name lila morales Maybe she can help another kid out there. You can leave now. Do you remember a little girl who passed away last Friday? They say they don't have her. I'm trying to figure out what to tell the mother. I don't want any trouble. I just need to know what happened. They can't help you. bigger than your daughter. My daughter is not an experiment. That's Muriel. She died two months ago. She can't be left alone. Do you have a pull-up? I have a futon. what you have done to her. I am doing everything I can to keep her alive. The point of life, it isn't just one thing. What is the point? And for my second featured review is going to be Birth Rebirth. This is from here in 2023, directed by Laura Moss, who also co-wrote this with Brendan J. O'Brien. This stars Marin Ireland, Judy Reyes, and Brida Wool, while also featuring Monique Gabriella Curran, Lachese, Bryant Carroll, Rachel Zeger-Hogg, AJ Lister, Lyndon Miles-Lee, Erica Sweeney, Richard Gallagher, Mary Ann Hay, David Levine, Katie Kwong, Sarah Dacey Charles, and Eric Yang. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd with our synopsis beam. A morgue technician successfully reanimates the body of a little girl, but to keep her breathing, she will need to harvest biological materials. When the girl's mother, a nurse, discovers her baby alive, they enter a deal that forces them both down a dark path of no return. So this movie that I heard some buzz about from the festival circuit i thought earlier in the year that it was just streaming so when i searched it out i realized that it wasn't available it was one that i put on a list to check out to see if it got released i did see this at the gateway film center so i was pretty stoked there to catch this on the big screen so let me go over to see some of the key people here before i get into the movie itself and i'll start with our director of moss she has helmed eight things i've only ever seen this one she has done three in horror the first Two were shorts called Rising Up, The Story of the Zombie Rights Movement. And the other is Friday, which is around the Ted Bundy execution where something was happening there. So then we also have additional directing here that was done by Tasha Petty. She's done this for three things. I've only ever seen this. Only one in horror. Then to the writers, I'll look at Moss once again. She has three in this role. I've only ever seen this one. Two are in horror with this and Friday. Now her co-writer of O'Brien has two credits. The other one is that Rising Up short. Then over to our cast. I'll start with Ireland. I've seen her in seven of her 48 roles. Not in horror, I've seen The Manchurian Candidate. They also don't consider I Am Legend as horror, but I lump it in. It's close enough. The horror story originally. But she has six in genre. I've not seen a short that she did first called A Film by Vera Vaughn. I did see Piercing, The Dark and the Wicked, and The Boogeyman from this year. She's also in The Empty Man. That is one that I've been meaning to watch as having as of yet. Then over to Reyes. She has been in 27 things, and I've seen two. She was also in Smile, but she has one other horror film called The Poker Club that I have not heard of. Now, Lister has been in two films. I've only ever seen this, and her only one that she's done so far in horror. Then the last one I'll look at is Wool. Now, she has 21 movies. I've seen three in horror she also has three i've seen xx and now this she's also in craters of the moon that i have not seen now the one movie that i've seen that's not in horror for her is that ultrasound movie that one has some really creepy elements and everything like that but even back when i was kind of reviewing that one i didn't necessarily think that it fell in genre either all right so let's get into this movie here now, I'll admit, I did alter the synopsis a bit. There was a spoiler that I'm not sure I want to reveal here, so I'll start by introducing one half of the team from the synopsis. There is Ceely, portrayed by Reyes. Now, she's a nurse that works in OB, from what I'm gathering. We see the stress of her job puts on her as she's napping on the floor, and she's woken up by her friend of Rita, portrayed by Kieran. Now, together, they go to a daycare in the hospital to pick up Ceely's daughter of Lila, portrayed by Lister. Now, these two live together in an apartment. Now, the other doctor is Rose, portrayed by Ireland. I didn't realize that she worked in the morgue, but it all makes sense now. Now, she does prep bodies for organ donation. Not everything she does there is ethical. She is also cold, and we see this towards her co-worker. I believe his name is Scott, portrayed by Harrison. Now, she lives in an apartment of her own with a pig named Muriel. Now, we see Rose go to a bar where she masturbates a man in the bathroom and collects a specimen with a pump used for breast milk. Now... This nurse and this doctor have a crossover when Celie oversleeps and her daughter wakes up not feeling well. She must take her daughter to her neighbor. The day doesn't go her way from there. Her little girl's upset with her, so she won't talk to her. Celie also drops her phone in the toilet. It gets even darker when she gets home and can't find them. There's a note that they went to the hospital. Celie gets the most devastating news that you could have as a parent as her daughter passed away from, I believe, bacterial meningitis. I know it's meningitis, but I'm not sure if it's viral or bacterial. Now, she goes onto the morgue to see her, but she's turned away by Rose, claiming that the body was already sent over to the medical examiners. She must wait until Monday to go there, and when she does, her nightmare gets even worse when they don't have her. Celie doesn't stop, though. She ends up learning the dark secret that Rose is hiding. It gives her hope when she sees her daughter is once again breathing. Given a second chance, she joins his doctor in trying to restore life to Lila that she once had. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the story. Where I want to start with my breakdown is that I heard a bit more about this movie than what I've relayed in my opening section. A friend asked if I was going to see this and she said it looked like a Frankenstein story. She isn't completely wrong there. That is a surface level of way of looking at this. We have Rose trying to cure death. She isn't piecing together a body though. Through her experiment, she hopes that she can revive Lila and keep her that way. Now, it takes treatments and time for the success that Celia is hoping for. So, I'm going to also share something personal here. If you follow my podcast here or reviews, then you most likely know my wife Jamie was admitted to the hospital two months early when pregnant with our daughter. She gave birth less than a week later. This movie was triggering for me, and I was on the verge of tears reliving aspects of that while watching this movie. I even shared this with a fellow theater goer who had a step out and was looking to be filled in on what he missed. This could be triggering for others. It deals with heavy subject matter. What goes into creating the serum is one. I'll allude to the fact that there are stem cells or something along those lines. What this duo needs for genetic material made me anxious. It is hard for me to fault Sealy, though. So, what I mean there is that as a parent, I wonder how far I would go to keep my daughter alive. It would be dark places. When she sees the chance to get her little girl back, she is willing to suspend her morals. And I believe that. Where it went in the end was another place that had me near tears. I can understand it and it still makes me feel bad. I'll be honest, this is one of the best movies that I've seen in years. It is due to the baggage that I'm bringing, but for it to make me go through the things that I did, I'm there for that. So I don't know if it would work as well as it did without good acting. Our two leads here are great, Ireland and Reyes. I like that they come from different ends of the spectrum. Ireland looks at everything clinically. She doesn't have a good bedside manner, and it's fitting for where she works. Reyes, on the other hand, is bubbly enough and disarms people with her charm. I loved seeing their interactions. We also see that different people can come together for common ground. I like seeing Wool here. Now, she's a, was in an independent movie that I was already bringing up here of Ultrasound. I thought she turns into another solid performance here. This much less as an expecting mother. And I only mean less there because she doesn't have a lot of screen time her ordeal though pulls at my heartstrings i'd say that lister was solid as the daughter here what she does for the experiments fits other than that i thought kieran lachazi gallagher harrison and the rest of the cast kind of rounded this off for what was needed so all that's left then would be filmmaking because there isn't any trivia on the imdb page at this time thought the cinematography was good this is shot well and they do good things with camera angles and whatnot there is some artistic flair without going over the top. thought the effects were also good. They looked realistic, and I think that having this set in the medical profession was also something that was solid. It grossed me out with things they did there. Other than I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed as well. So in conclusion, this movie was challenging me in the best ways possible. I'll acknowledge that. I'm probably overrating this for how it made me feel with personal things that I've gone through. Despite that, we have challenging subject matter here. This is almost a Frankenstein story, but just done differently. The acting is good. Being led by Ireland and Reyes. I'd also say that this is well made from the effects being the strongest part there. Followed by the cinematography. Again, not everyone is going to like this as much as I did. This is in my top spot, and... I want to revisit this before the end of the year as I'm hoping this does actually come to Shudder before then so I can get that second rewatch in, which is always you know, kind of important for me. So my rating here for Birth Rebirth is going to be a 9 out of 10. Once again, not going to do a spoiler section because I don't necessarily think I'll ascertain anything deeper or be able to give you anything outside of just spoiling stuff. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out this show. Journey with a Cinefire and welcome back one last time here and just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff if you'd like to send me an email you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com you can send me any sort of feedback or if you have any questions or anything go ahead and shoot them there and i'll get back to you as soon as i can or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that anything podcast related you can send it via that way if you'd like to read any of the written reviews i'll direct you to reviews of the dead and that's whoreview.webnode.com like to become friends with me on facebook i'm david michigan garrett jr on twitter i'm book from mish letterbox i'm david osu on instagram i'm david osu 87 on threads i'm david osu 87 and then journey with a cinephile has its own instagram at journey with a cinephile all one word now all of these ones i will be sharing like my ratings on whatnot i know for letterbox all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. instagram i will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that i'm reviewing My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for Threads and then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast related different stuff over there. And for all of those, I will have the links in the show notes below. And I'll also say if you also want to hear me, this podcast is streaming on Planet X Network, which is going to be on the blog post. You can go ahead and click into it there because, I mean, if you're listening out of Podcatcher, I don't have it signed here. But just so you're aware, if that's another way you'd like to listen to it, as that is a there's also some other fun shows that are on there as well. And you can also find me over on the Nightclub Podcast Discord channel. I have my own little section over there. So come in and join the fun and discussions that we get going on over there. So then for the next episode, it's going to be episode 200. Didn't think I'd ever make it this far, so I'm kind of like I'm shocked and, you know, appreciative of all those that listen that you know have helped me kind of keep this thing going even though i've gotten to the point now where i probably just do this as i scream into the void and not necessarily always hear a lot back but i would still do it regardless so anyways since it's going to be episode 200 what i'm going to go ahead and do is going to be doing my top 100 and bottom 10 of my trek through the twos now this is something that since i started the podcast i've been compiling this so i'll get more into everything like that but that'll be the main feature over there On top of that, I'm going to do a rewatch. I believe a Videodrome is the first one from 1983 that I'm going to be doing. So that'll be, you know, the Traverse of the Threes rewatch. I will also check out a 2023 horror film release. Didn't see anything at the theater and I have a very busy weekend. So I'm probably just going to find something that's streaming and has been on my list for at least a little bit. And then I'm going to try to do a 2023 rewatch. Still kind of struggling with something being on free services or ones that I'm already paying for. Other than that, I'll continue to watch more Summer Series prep as well as more screeners as I keep getting them in. So, I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here to end out this episode, so I will say in closing is thank you so much for listening, and whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending...